Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Andrew Boll, Chief Executive of Rice Warner. Andrew, welcome. Thank you for having me. So I thought today we would sort of kick off with you know this ideological battle that seems to continue on in Canberra. Um, it was discussed again yesterday by Senator Rennick around um, the cost of tax concessions that you know face the superannuation industry. There seems to be this this real backlash that you know we're subsidising super. What are your thoughts on on that issue? Always an interesting place to start. Um, the tax concessions debate's been going on for ages, as you just said, and the number is disputed and argued about all the time. Uh, it's difficult to, to pinpoint it to one number, and it all depends on the assumptions you make. And I think that's the, that's the key part. And I think one of the most critical assumptions that gets made is in relation to how you treat the tax concessions provided on investment income. So, as you know, when we're in accumulating money in a superannuation account, investment income is taxed at 15%. And when you're looking at the cost of tax concessions, one way that you can measure that cost, in quotation marks, would be to, well, if that money was invested outside of superannuation, what would those investments be taxed at? And they, the default position would be to go to the person's marginal rate. And so, in many cases, you're comparing, say, a 45% marginal rate with a 15% investment rate in superannuation. Um, there's a couple of flaws to that. Um, the first one being it assumes that the person would have saved the money if they uh, didn't put it into superannuation. And the second one is that they would save it in a, a different non-concessional environment. And we all know that, for example, if you're going to save money outside of superannuation, people might put it in into a negatively geared investment property, which also has its own tax concessions. And they, they aren't properly accounted for in those sort of arguments often. The other thing is also for a lot of people, this is, goes back to the uh, historic debate at the very start of compulsory superannuation, is that, uh, and a lot of research was done around this in the US about uh, the reason to have compulsion at all. And you usually only have compulsion as a last resort when um, the, the commercial system is uh, not doing what you want it to do. So if people aren't saving for their retirement, and no matter what tax concessions or other things you make available to induce them to do that, um, sometimes compulsion is the only op option. So in Australia, I think we've been fortunate to, to go down the path of compulsion so that we have actually got the most, well, all working Australians, people employed, saving for their retirement through superannuation. And in this situation, if it wasn't compulsory, do you think most people would then save that money somewhere else and pay their marginal rate of tax on that investment income? And the answer is no. We've seen that before. Before compulsory superannuation, people didn't save through that vehicle at all or anywhere, nowhere near as much. And uh, so, in, in fact, that money would be spent at Coles or at Dan Murphy's or at uh, West Farmers at, at Woolworths, wherever else, and spent on other items. And there'd be no tax on investment income put into the system at all. So, and I think that accounts for most of the reported concessions from superannuation. So I think the numbers, you've got to be very careful within those debates, um, making sure that we have a true proper analysis of what we're talking about. 
I think a lot of the concern or maybe this ideological battle comes from the fact that they see these concessions, these tax concessions that are there, and they say, okay, we're giving you concessions because you're creating a superannuation pool that's designed to take you off the pension. But then there's concerns that, you know, a large number of people, you know, a number has been thrown around as almost 70% are going to rely on the pension to some degree. So why are we giving so many concessions if ultimately we're getting, you know, such a large number of people that sit on the pension um, and then we've got this whole other system of superannuation that costs a lot of fees, there's a lot of issues and charges, and they say, well, why don't we just put everyone on the pension in the ultimate space? So curious on your thoughts on, on this battle. Yes, it's, uh, you're picking a lot of topics that uh, go back way, you know, a long time ago. Um, we're very lucky in Australia for another reason, that we've got a, a means-tested age pension, which enables us to keep control over the, the growing cost of providing the age pension to basically populations all around the world that are ageing. So you look at all through Europe and other countries that have all got uh, similar ageing populations um, and where they have uh, a social security taxpayer funded age pension, you look at those costs and they are going through the roof. They are literally um, very soon going to be most of them in double figures above 10% as a percentage of GDP in terms of cost to their taxpayers. In Australia, um, a number of years back, uh, the, the intergenerational report, when it first came out, and I think that was back in 2005 or thereabouts, and uh, the projected cost to, to, of GDP for the Australian age pension was uh, going to get up to about 3.9% by 2050, and which was much lower than what we were anticipating in all of these other um, OECD countries. And because of the way we've uh, made changes to our system, because the superannuation guarantee has increased up to 9%, now 9.5%, uh, projected to grow further into 12%, all these um, legislated changes to the future savings in Australia have now been taken into account in the projected cost of the age pension going forward. And the most recent change was the increase to the taper rate, which we might talk about a bit further in a minute. But in 2017, the, the taper rate was changed and uh, with the combination of the increasing savings through the SG and the, the current taper rate and means testing system, by 2060, the cost to Australian taxpayers of the age pension is actually forecast to be reducing down to as low as 2.5% of GDP um, compared to everybody else being 10% or higher. Um, one of the things you've got to remember is that as we've been saving more in superannuation, it's not until you get above uh, certain thresholds uh, that you don't become in, entitled to any age pension at all. So, for example, if you're a homeowning couple, um, it's not until you have assets at, uh, outside of your own home that um, your yeah, assets have to be above $863,500 before you're not entitled to any age pension. Now, what happens is somebody, a couple like that might retire with a million dollars. And in the first five years, they spend down a bit of their money and a bit of their money. So they start off fully self-funded. But after five years, their superannuation and other savings now falls to $800,000. And they're now entitled to a part age pension. And that gradually drips down for a bit longer. But without the superannuation guarantee or at this level, they might have started off in retirement um, $600,000 getting a much higher age pension from the word go and very quickly they fall down to under $400,000 and they become eligible for a full age pension much quicker. So 
It's the proportion of the age pension that they're entitled to and for how long that's the most important factors. So even though a high percentage of Australians are still going to be eligible for some age pension, it won't be as much as they would otherwise have been, and that's making a huge savings to the Australian taxpayer over time. I wanted to sort of pick up, you know, you talked, you talked about sort of the pension not being a, you know, a huge burden on, on GDP. You know, in terms of the assumptions that, that uh, support that, we, we do have some anecdotal evidence that a number of um, families are and, and pe- persons are moving into retirement still with, with large debts that, that sit on their house. Um, and while the, the, you know, the, the family home is, is not considered part of the means test, you know, is this a way for people to potentially sort of um, divert assets so that they can you know, put more pressure on the pension ultimately because they, they've found a, a tax loophole, you could maybe call that? It's it's a really interesting question because um, the reason why I'm laughing is it, it's a who would want to put money into an illiquid investment that they can't really live off. I mean, the aim of retirement savings is to live during retirement and to live a decent lifestyle. And so there may be some ways around the fringes where you can um, maximise your eligibility for the age pension and and still live a decent life. But the main aim for most people, I think, is just to actually live a decent life in retirement. I think we've got bigger problems coming into retirement is around the uh, you know, encouraging people to spend enough money in retirement safely and having the right uh, retirement income products available to help them do that. One thing that, uh, to your point though, that, that there are some things that, that have started to think about for myself lately is if you take a, a single person, um, who doesn't own their own home, uh, if they had accumulated a million dollars through superannuation, would they be better off um, buying a two-bedroom apartment with $600,000 and immediately becoming eligible for a full-age pension because the home is exempt and spend down, get a full-age pension and then spend down the remaining $400,000 over a number of years, and when they run out of that money, they could then um, revert back and get a reverse mortgage or even access the government's pension loan scheme to top up their retirement income using some of the equity in their own own home, which they bought. Um, And as you said, the owner home is exempt from the the assets test, and so they they will be eligible for the age pension from day one by simply converting some of those uh, savings into a, a house rather than leaving it in superannuation. Um, interesting issue, especially when the, the rental assistance providing for not owning your own home is uh, has fallen out of kilter a bit with the market. And so being a non-homer, non-home-owning retiree is pretty tough these days. Before I touch on the pension loan scheme, because I think that's a, that's a fascinating piece, I wanted to sort of go and dig a little bit more onto your example of a million dollars and, and buying a two-bedroom apartment for 600000 and then using the 400000 What's really fascinating about that sort of example is, let's say you wanted to earn the pension. Is the pension, let's say, for a single around thirty thousand dollars? Sort of that. A single, it's about twenty four and a half, twenty five thousand dollars, I think, from my from memory at the moment. Okay, so let's say we, we we're looking for that, you know, and that's a tax free amount that you can earn. If you put that million dollars into a fund, you know, and you were given advice in quotation to to probably take a conservative approach. What's sort of the expected return of, of that sort of um, uh, portfolio that you should get? Two and a half, three and a half percent? 
somewhere in that vicinity. Um, but there's yeah. still there's still risk that sits behind that. Um, and if you're just sitting in a in a potential bank, your your bank only gives you you know a government guarantee um, of up to two hundred and fifty thousand. So you'll have to split your money across multiple banks to be able to get that that benefit and still not make that twenty five thousand you know in this current environment. So it's a really interesting construct that if you are a self funded retiree, it is actually quite difficult um, to you know understand how there is this idea that you need to be self-funded to some degree and that's the premise but then it mm-hmm. feels like there's a uh, some inequity in the system how, how do you see that yes well and, look, and back first of all you've covered a few points in there but one of the questions about how much would you earn on the million dollars and one of the questions is how much would you earn in there safely and you know you at the moment, a superannuation fund would still, over the long term, be aiming to earn around seven percent. But obviously, um, the first couple of percent of that would be um, to cover off inflationary increases, at least two, two to three percent. So after inflation, you might be looking at something more like four, four and a half percent if you were aggressive. And as you were more and more conservative, that would reduce down to the two or three percent that you're talking about. Um, interestingly. The people that are most exposed to falls in investment markets are those that have uh, that are on the full age pension with a bit of extra money because um, any loss of that money just they fully bear the consequences of. And also wealthy people who don't get any age pension, they full the bear consequences uh, bear the full consequences of any loss in assets. Whereas people who are in the the middle, as I like to call it, the in the middle uh, savings levels, who are get a part age pension and who are affected by the taper rate, if they, and this is something that's happened recently, that with the recent asset falls we've had because of COVID or through all of the economic impacts that have flown, resulted from that, um, with asset values falling 10, 20% at, at, for, a little, for a short period of time, but still now we're still well below where they were um, six months ago, the amount of age pension they receive has just gone up because their assets that are tested against the means test has fallen. And so there's a, the, the age pension provides a natural hedge for some investment risk for those people in the middle. No, it's, in, it's interesting, an interesting sort of balancing or a counterbalance to, to sort of the market risk that, that's out there. I, I wanted to sort of dig into sort of this pension loan scheme that you sort of touched on. It, it's not something that I've, I've known about. I haven't heard about it. I know you mentioned it just off, off the off the record before we got on the on this call and you know give me a little bit more context to it we'd heard a lot about these reverse mortgages that a number of super funds had sort of put tried to put in place that haven't gone anywhere there was other reverse mortgages out in the market but what is this pension loan scheme well the pension loan scheme has been around for quite a while i'm not sure what year it actually started but it's been quite some time ago but uh, the reason why i became aware of it again was it was upgraded recently so it was, it was changed with effect from 1 July 2019, so a few changes went through last year, um, the other one being the means test, test treatment of deferred lifetime annuities, we can talk about them later as well. But for the pension loan scheme, um, previously, before 1 July last year, you're only entitled to a pension loan scheme if you were, um, I think if this is the case, if you're only, if you're on, a, an, on the age pension. Whereas what they've done is now has extended it to all Australians, technically, you've got to be very careful of the wording. And I think then with the wording on the website, you look at the government website, you'll, you'll find it there. It, uh, it says that you have to be eligible for the age pension. 
And a lot of people read that to mean that you actually have to be receiving a dollar of the age pension or more. Now, and I've had this clarified recently, you only have to be eligible to receive the age pension. The amount you receive because of the means test might be zero, but because you're an Australian tax resident and all the other things, if you're entitled to reach, uh, if you had no money, would you be entitled to the age pension? If the answer is yes, then you're entitled to take out, uh, use the pension loan scheme. And what the pension loan scheme um, allows you to do is to increase the amount you receive um, as an age pension um, up to 150% of the current level of the age pension. So we talked before about the age pension being roughly 24000 a year for a single. It's about 36000 a year for a couple. So what that means is that uh, for 24000 a year, um, you can increase that by 50% and have your income in retirement increased up to $36,000 a year. And the amount above what you would otherwise be entitled to is put into an account, increased each year with interest. And at the moment, the pension loan scheme, I think, is charging you 4.5% interest. And there is a cap on how much you can uh, effectively borrow against your home so that uh, they don't have issues with um, using more than the value of your home. So and I don't off the top of my head remember that percentage, but usually they're set at around 50% or something of the value of your home. But you can accumulate a debt against the value of your home and continue to receive this 36000 a year. And when you die, um, the loan is, has, is repayable. So you, if the home is sold, for $500,000 and your pension loan scheme debt is $200,000, you sell the home, $200,000 goes back to the government and $300,000 goes to the estate. Um, if the other beneficiaries can keep the, uh, the house and can still repay the debt, that's probably another way you can handle that. But um, yeah, it's a good thing there. So for a couple um, with $36,000 a year, half of that's another eighteen, And so they can basically get a $54,000 a year age pension, which is getting you close to thereabouts to the as the comfortable level for a couple. You know, so it's a pretty good system to give you a guaranteed level of income, but the uh, the excess against what you're otherwise entitled to gets accumulated against the, a debt to your house. No, it's a very interesting scheme that I don't think has got much, as you sort of said, and I and I hadn't heard about it um, before today. Um, I'm curious as to why it hasn't had so much uh um, publicity is that the government doesn't want to have so much collateral in people's houses. They're doing a great job in keeping the housing market alive, so I would have thought they'd be keen to uh, be be writing loans against these uh, properties too. Yeah, and look, to be honest, I mean, I think that some of the people I've spoken with in government recently are surprised that the take-up rate of the pension loan scheme hasn't been larger, and I think it is largely the fact that it isn't that well-known, probably because a lot of advisors or others, even if they are aware of it, think that you have to be receiving an age pension to get it uh, and that's the big big uh, mistake so oh, no, that, that won't apply here because you're getting the um, not getting the age pension it won't apply to you so I think once all this clarified maybe this podcast will help people to understand that uh, it is available and to look into it it, mm-hmm. it looks like a pretty good uh, good thing I think one of the things going into retirement as I said before being single with the way rents have gone in over the last 15 or so years private rental has gone through the roof compared to um, a lot of other things and the rental assistance scheme is uh, fallen well behind private rental rates. And so if you're a single retired renter, then you're probably doing it pretty tough. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, uh, maybe it, it, it's, it's starting with, with sort of the, the, 
current market sort of starting to slow down um, and, you know, still building going on. Hopefully the rent market might start to, to balance out, but that's still um, a, a, a tough place to be. Yeah. Well, oh, one of the things we've seen recently, though, as well, with the some of the funds now talking about their uh, investments in social infrastructure through the, the economic fallout from COVID, uh, there has been you know, some funds talking about their investments in social housing and the like. And so you know, maybe that will improve through this period over the next few years as well as we reinvest back into the economy. It's interesting you say that. We've tried to do that at a number of our real estate events over the last few years, and it's been very, very slow. Um, but you know, social housing is obviously a very big um, part of the housing market in the UK, um, Netherlands as well. Um, so it's interesting. Maybe maybe this is the 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 tipping point with with the current COVID situation, and also returns being hard to find. But um, you know, there's a big demand for for potentially this type of housing to come through. So maybe it's finally an asset class that can be institutionalized. I think that was a, a really big um, part of the question that you know a number of asset owners had. Yeah, I think one, I've been approached about this over the years as well, and I think you know the asset owners have a responsibility for all their members to realize a commercial rate of return on all their investments and can't just say well for this 10 percent of the assets we'll take a less than commercial rate of return but i think there's an opportunity to do a public private partnership where the government could co-fund some of these for a a social purpose and still provide the asset owner with a commercial rate of return that that they and between the two of them um make a big difference mm-hmm. Just I wanted to touch on a, the deferred um, lifetime annuities that you sort of gave some brief comments on. You know, it's an interesting place. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on whether you you really think that they're you know going to be able to come back to light because time and time again it feels that members and advisors sort of had struggled with with um, either understanding or communicating about them and um, what your thoughts are there and and maybe any other sort of retirement innovations that that can maybe help out. Yeah, no. I've- I've been a strong advocate, supporter for deferred life or time annuities for um, over a decade and have been speaking to, gosh, my discussions go back more than 10 years with uh, Bill Shorten when he was the Minister for Superannuation. And I think at that stage we were, we were looking at getting the tax treatment change, which was we did, and then finally last year, uh, with bipartisan support, uh, the means test treatment for deferred lifetime annuities were finally changed from 1 July 2019. And, you know, some of the things that, you know, importantly from that is that if you buy a deferred lifetime annuity with the changes that took place last year, that only 60% of the purchase price is counted as an asset. So that if somebody has $500,000 and they use $50,000, so you know, 10%, to buy a deferred lifetime annuity, or as I shorten it to a DLA, um, that means that of that 50000 purchase price, 30000 is still counted as an asset, but the other 20% is now no longer um, counted as an asset for the, uh, the age pension. So as a result of that, as soon as you buy a deferred lifetime annuity, you immediately become entitled to more age pension. And so with $20,000 less counting for the assets test, this person I just talked about would be entitled to $1,560 more in the age pension the next year. And if you do that, until they get down below the um, the lower threshold for the age pension, and that might take 10 years or so, uh, they'd get an extra $1,500 a year for, for 10 years. So that's $15,000. So of the $50,000 purchase price, 
before they've even received a recent back from the annuity, they've received about $15,000 worth of uh, additional age pension payments. And then on top of that, uh, in, you know, if they do live a long-lived life, then they'll get uh, payments continuing on for the rest of their life, no matter how long they live. I think that change makes an enormous difference to um, the perceived value of a deferred lifetime annuity. A lot of people say that they are expensive now, so the means test treatment helps to make them less expensive. But people say they're expensive, I think, because they value the the insurance component um, at basically at, at, as worthless. And they're valuing it, they're looking at it only as an investment. But uh, if you had, you know, if you insure your home against a fire and your house doesn't burn down, do you think it was a waste of time insuring it? And that, that premium you paid was a waste of money? No, because someone like somebody else's house probably burnt down and was lucky it wasn't yours. Um, so likewise, if you're if, if we're insuring against people living a long life, it is funny that it, if uh, just because you happen to be the one that, that doesn't live a long life, um, that you didn't get value for money because you might have been the one. And that's the, that's the issue we're trying to deal with here. There is an insurance component. And so there are, there are ways around making them more amenable to be purchased. I think we've got to simplify the communication and simplify how advisors talk to their clients about and how they understand the value that's created from them. So we've got to simplify the product. But at the end of the day, I'm, I strongly believe that without some sort of longevity protection like a DLA, that people will be worried about living a long life. Therefore, they will um, keep some money up their sleeves just in case. And as a result, they'll underspend, particularly in the early part of their retirement, just in case. And what that means is they're living a more frugal life, especially when they're healthy, than they otherwise would be able to. And I'm really trying to find ways to help people live a better life in their retirement. Well, it's fantastic you say that because that's actually one of the the real um, points of the Nicolette Rubenstein um, podcast that we did, which is really around sort of mental health and well-being so that we actually do live longer. Um, it obviously then means you can take advantage of your annuity for a longer period as well. So you wouldn't have to worry. So there's maybe a potential win um, that can come from that. But is there more that can be done from a financial advice point of view to try and help people understand these products? You talk about simplification, you know, but is there, is there other factors that, that you know, need to play into this, this case? Yeah, look, I think the, the two big issues that we've got for the industry going forward from here on a positive outlook is retirement solutions like DLAs and SIPAs and the like and getting that suited. And with that comes a need for advice. Now, advice, not just only to explain their solutions and how they work for people, but also its complexity because how it works with the age pension, how it works with home ownership, how it works with the reverse mortgages and the pension loan scheme, all of these things need advice. But but most people, uh, let's ignore the, the top 10 or 15% of wealthy people who can afford to get full advice and do other things themselves. But for most people, they don't want to pay $3,000 for what they perceive to be simple advice about one or two simple matters. I've got superannuation, I've got my house, what do I do? And it's just simply, so there must be a way for us to provide information, guidance and advice in different situations to help people do that so that more Australians can get access to this information, guidance and advice in an affordable way. Now, we've had the Royal Commission and that's this exposed a lot of bad practices. 
And a lot of things are changing as a result of that. A lot of advisors are leaving. There's new education standards coming in through FASIA and other things. And all of that could mean that it's even harder to get advice. So we've got to find a way to make it easier. And so I think that the time is right now to have a look at how we regulate advice. Digital is now becoming more common. We're now using digital for a whole lot of things. We've got a lot of tools and calculators that Rice Warner builds for our clients. But how do we regulate these tools and calculators? How do we provide a seamless way through into guidance for members with a simple issue through to advice where it becomes a bit more complicated so that someone can ring up and say, look, I've looked at one of your calculators. I want this one thing I've got to do. Um, and I only want to pay 300 bucks for it and get a record of the advice. I don't need an 80-page SOA. That's got to be the future, how we use digital, how we get uh, streamlined the whole advice process, but regulation and how we regulate it is absolutely key to the success. It's interesting you sort of talk about the digital calculators, uh, sorry, the online calculators and, and processes that we can go through. And, you know, there's this whole vision of robo-advice that I think is always going to be slow, particularly because, you know, you're talking about large sums of money. It's really confusing. People need some advice, you know, so... At, at some stage, you need people involved, and then that becomes more and more costly. Do we potentially need to start rethinking the sole purpose test around super um, such that we can allow maybe some you know, increased amounts of advice to, to be included as part of that? Yeah, I mean, that's been the, the difficult thing. As soon as you start talking about things outside of superannuation, it moves into the personal advice regime, and therefore you have to do the, the complete know your customer, um, a full SOA. Um, and a lot of times, here's a good example, I guess, too. If you're looking at someone who wants to think about, do I need insurance cover? I'm 35 years of old. I've just got a mortgage and I've got a kid. Do I need insurance cover? How much do I need? Um, and it's not that complex, but you need to know how much debt they've got. Oh, that's not superannuation. So now it becomes personal advice. And so now you've got to know everything about the person. To, to try and give this advice. Um, so the sole purpose in this situation should be to help the person make a better decision. And that should be enough. Well, it's interesting because the sole purpose is such a weird terminology when you're thinking about the sole purpose, which is ultimately getting you through to retirement and having a dignified retirement. Let's let's assume that that's the, that's the end point, whatever that, that you know, term means. You know, so you get through and you and you have a good retirement, you've got an income source, but you actually need that financial advice all through life. So you once you actually do reach retirement, that you are in that financial position to to live that dignified life. Yes, and I think and how intrafund plays into all of this as well. Um, you know, I saw some numbers from one of the the firms, I won't name them in this, but it was before the uh, House of Reps hearings the other day and they reported that I think they charged their members something like $6 a year for, which contributes towards their intra-fund advice. And last year, a couple of thousand members took advantage of the intra-fund advice. And so, you know, you don't have to take advantage of the advice each and every year. So you might uh, take advantage of it every with an event, and what, which might happen three or four times during your lifetime, but at different stages for different people. Um, so we've got to be very flexible in how we allow people to fund and pay for this advice. And so intra-fund advice needs to play a part, I think. And along with then scaled single-issue advice, somebody rings up about insurance or they rings up about investment choice to help them make good decisions along the way. So when they get to retirement, the, the nest egg has grown and they've had insurance cover, they've had the things they need 
and they haven't had to pay out two or three thousand dollars out of their nest egg um, to pay for a lot of information that they probably didn't really need or use. So in my final question, I want to take it back almost to where we started, which was around tax concessions. And you know, you talked about the intergenerational report and and how to make, you know, how to deal with sort of the fairness in the tax system. You know, one of the ways, and we've talked about this a little bit as well around sort of the house, you know, as we think about sort of trying to, to create more fairness and equity across the the whole system of not just super but sort of lifestyle in, in, in Australia, you know, do we potentially need uh, an estate tax to maybe help to sort of balance out some of these transfer of wealth that create could create even more inequity in the, in the system? Wow, that's a big question. Um, let, me, let me start by saying something about uh, estate taxes uh, in terms of superannuation. At the moment, there is an anomaly in the system around uh, where, um, when you die. So if you're, you, you get through your working life, you retire, you start drawing down an account-based pension. But as we know right now, since uh, for many years now, you can make all withdrawals from superannuation are tax-free. And so you, you, you withdraw your money out. But if you, um, if you die, then if it's paid, if your superannuation money is paid to a dependent, it is also tax-free. But if it is paid to a dependent, a non-dependent, then there's a 15% tax. And so you project that forward to the, you're now 75 years of age and you die, then in theory, um, your children are probably 45 or 50. They're no longer dependent, we hope. And um, therefore, they will be subject to a 15% tax on the superannuation payments to them. But if you had been diagnosed with a terminal illness, then one of the things you would clearly be advised to do is to take all of your money out of super, tax-free, and then your children, who are not dependent, can then receive the money from the estate tax-free. So it's a different situation about whether you accidentally die a, a quick death in retirement or whether it's um, a planned death because you've got a terminal illness and the tax treatment is, is different in those two situations. So in a way, for superannuation monies, there is already a, an estate tax in that way. And I think I'm not going to be brave enough to say that we should have an estate tax. I'll just, just call out one of the differences there, though, is that I think that We've got to think about what the purpose of superannuation is, and this, go, and this has been called for a lot over the, the years, and the Retirement Income Review is another opportunity for us to think about what the purpose of superannuation is and what the goal is. I think if we go back to um, there was just around the, the financial system inquiry in 2014, a couple of years later in uh, 2016, there was a, a bill put before Parliament called the Superannuation Objective Bill, and it established the primary objective of the superannuation system as being to provide income in retirement to substitute or supplement the age pension. And there were five um, subsidiary objectives put into that in the explanatory memorandum as well. But if, that, if the prime purpose of superannuation is to provide income in retirement, that's why we give tax concessions to savings for retirement. For any money that's not used for retirement income, there is a reasonable argument that any tax concessions given to that money should be returned to the taxpayer. It's a, it's an interesting one. I, I, <laughs> nobody like, likes to pay taxes. Um, you know, I think we can see that from a lot of the, the negative gearing that goes on in this country. 
um, and and taxes will always be this this angst that that people have. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Andrew. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.